Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at Fifth Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture reading today is taken from Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an extendingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor breast nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mildly to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, uh, let me pray for us as we now come to this passage of Scripture. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of his Spirit, that you would help us this morning to receive this moment and this passage as the gift that it is to us. Lord, would you open our eyes to behold you, both as a God of justice, but also a God of mercy. Would you help us to rejoice that you are a God who delights to lavish those who have not earned or deserved it, your blessing, and your salvation, your kindness. God, would you use that to just change us and fill us with humility, with hope, with obedience to Go out and share this incredible news about a God who saves with others. Guys, it's in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the last couple of weeks we've been learning that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a theme in Jonah. And in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, Jonah says that salvation belongs to the Lord. But we come now to a prickly implication of salvation belonging to the Lord in chapter 3. Because that salvation belongs to the Lord is good news on the one hand, but also challenging news on the other. On the one hand, 
It's good news because it means that our salvation, yours and mine, whether you're brand new here or you're just thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, it's encouraging because it means that salvation doesn't depend upon who you are. Praise God. Your salvation also doesn't depend upon what you've done or what you've been able to earn from God. Praise him. Salvation belongs to him. And we've seen in this book so far that the God of the Bible is the God who is willing to save any sinner, everyone, anyone, even if they are the furthest away from him like the sailors were who were not Jewish. Or if you are at the bottom of the sea and you're the least deserving like Jonah was, God is a God who saves. The God we worship, the God who's revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ is a God who loves every human. A God who wants to save every human. And a God who is overflowing with mercy towards every human. But as Jonah will experience in chapter 3, this is prickly at times. Because that salvation belongs to the Lord can be challenging when God decides to save people we hate. It's pretty good for us when we get it. But when God in his mercy works to save those that are our enemies, this reality that salvation belongs to the Lord is deeply confrontational for us. What I'm praying, what I'm hoping is that as you look at chapter 3 and we see Jonah's struggle to accept God's grace, not for him, but for others, that we would be confronted, that we would be challenged, that we would remember all that God has done in his great mercy to save us. And that in remembering his mercy for us, we would be softened in our own hearts to be participants in his mission to bring grace to others, even to our enemies. So we're going to see this in three different points. We're going to wrestle with this in three different ways as you look at God's grace and Nineveh's repentance and God's forgiveness. Three points this morning. God's grace, Nineveh's repentance, and God's forgiveness. All in this challenging moment of the implications of salvation belonging to the Lord and what that means when God chooses to save our enemies. Well, we jump in. And we see here right away that God is relenting in his grace and mercy to the undeserving because as chapter 3 begins, God is merciful and generous and gracious to Jonah yet again. Look at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I think if we're reading quickly, we can miss God's grace in this verse. But this is significant. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Because Jonah is the only prophet in the Bible who gets commissioned by God twice. He's the only one. And when God's word came to Jonah the first time in chapter 1, let's remember what happened. Jonah refused to go. His eye will not go to Assyria. He refused. He rebels. He goes the other direction. Because in Jonah's reckoning, Nineveh was simply too cruel, too immoral, too sinful, too much an enemy of his own people to receive God's mercy and grace. So what does Jonah do? Well, he flies. He goes the other direction. He goes down to the ship and runs away. And what does God do? God relentlessly pursues Jonah in his grace. 
He brings Jonah to his knees in repentance at the bottom of the sea. And when Jonah cries out for God to save him, God does save him. And then here we see in 3 verse 1, after God saved Jonah, he restores him as his prophet. He commissions Jonah a second time to go to Nineveh. I think it's important for us to, to see that in this story, this book of Jonah, we learn a few things about God that are very important for us to learn. We learn that God is a God of mercy and that God is a God of grace. Those are two different but complementary and beautiful things. Mercy is not giving us the justice that we deserve for our sins. That's what happened with Noah. He should have died at the bottom of the ocean for his sins and his rebellion against God. But God does not judge Jonah as his sins deserve. And grace, if mercy is not getting what we deserve for our sins, grace is being given lavish gifts and blessings that we could never earn. It's a blessing and this gift from God. And what does God do? God lavishly blesses Jonah with this new commissioning. A second chance. See, the only other time in the Bible that a prophet directly disobeys God, he's killed as God's judgment. But not Jonah. Jonah is forgiven. And Jonah is welcomed into this incredible place of blessing. Just stop and think of this for a moment. How, how excited would you be if God wanted to use you and called you to use you for the salvation of your family? For the salvation of your apartment block? What about the salvation of your city? Like this is a, this is a gift. He's called a second time. He's not earned or deserved it. And God's like, I want to use you again. I still want to use you and bless you to be part of what I am doing to save Nineveh. So God is gracious to Jonah. And in verse 2, God says to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against the message that I tell you. Very important. Call out what I tell you to say. And in verse 3, Jonah, he receives a second commission of the grace of God. He obeys. He travels approximately 1,400 kilometers to Nineveh. So if there's any question of, did Jonah repent? Clearly he did. Repent means to turn, to go the other direction. He's walking a long way the other direction from where he was going to obey God and to, and to fulfill this commission that he's been given. Verse 3 says, Jonah arose. He obeyed. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And yet, even as he travels to Nineveh, Jonah still struggles to understand God's grace. He doesn't get it. He struggles with it. He wrestles with it, I think, at a heart level and maybe even at an intellectual level. Because he's willing to receive it for him. God's gracious. That's awesome. That's good news for me, good news for my people. But he's not quite ready to extend that grace toward others, especially toward his enemies. And actually, we see in the context in verse 3, a subtle corrective to Jonah. We have to look carefully. I'm going to show you what it's, what it's saying here at a deeper level to see it. Um, because there's a corrective here for Jonah and for any one of us who are like Jonah. People who would oppose God's grace and God's freedom and God's wisdom to be the savior of other people, not just of ourselves. So in verse 3, we read it, this in English, but I'm going to correct it in Hebrew. I don't like to do this, but we're going to do it this morning. Uh, your translations are wonderful in your Bible, but I want to show you something here. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, 
before I say something about the Hebrew, when you read Jonah in Hebrew, what you'll see is that it is an incredibly well-crafted text. Every detail matters. There's all this poetry and, and perfect parallelism and connection that's in the book, and it's there for a reason. And I think that there's a way of understanding the Hebrew here that's part of that, that subtle, corrective reasoning. Because the Hebrew for exceedingly great city is literally a city great to God. It's interesting. And one way of translating these words is to say that it is a city or a great city that belongs to God. And I actually think that would be a very faithful translation, kind of given what Jonah's getting at. And the whole, the whole book, challenging our conception of who God is supposed to be gracious to. And even here as Jonah is on his way traveling to obey God the second time, God puts verse 3 in this book to challenge the Jonahs in the room who are reading it, saying, just remember now, now Nineveh was a great city that belongs to God. A three-day journey in breadth. It's not just any city, it's a city that belongs to to God. And how fitting is that in the story of Jonah? Because Jonah's problem was that he thought God was just the God of Israel. He felt God is the God of the city of Jerusalem, but not the city of Nineveh. And I think we can feel the same way. He's the God of Vancouver, but not of New York. Or maybe he's the God of New York and Vancouver, but not the God of, heaven forbid, of Gaza or of Russia. Right, or of any area of conflict in this world that, that we're accustomed to see as the enemy. I think that at Jonah's time and in his day, if he had a picture of the world and of God's grace, it would kind of be like a globe. If you picture a globe with a flashlight shining on it, and where the light touched, that's where God's grace belonged. And very conveniently, the light touches me and my people. And beyond that light and into the shadows, maybe God's not the God of those people in quite the same way or interested in being gracious to them. But this limited view of God isn't who God is at all. And verse 3, I think, is getting at that. A great city belonging to God. See, God is the God of heaven and earth. The Bible teaches this. It's very clear. And Nineveh and every city belongs to him. And he desires that every city repent and receive his grace. Psalm 145, 8 to 9, which we often read here uh, in the church, um, it says this, and I think it's getting at the same idea. It's quoting from Exodus 34, and who Israel understood the covenant God of Israel to be. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But verse 9 goes on and says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. See, Jonah's view of God wasn't too big, it was far too small. And because Jonah has such a limited view of God and I think of his grace, he only goes to Nineveh, I think, because he's holding out hope still that they'll be destroyed. That's why he goes. He is obedient outwardly, right? He goes, but he goes because he's like, that's okay. At least I'll go and they'll get crushed. I'll go and I'll be the prophet of Yahweh and he'll destroy them and it'll be all okay. You know, I'll, I'll, we'll do it. You can look at Jonah 3 verse 4 to see this. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And again, 
There's something subtle happening here in Hebrew because the word overthrown has a double meaning. It can be understood in two different ways. I think Jonah understood it in one way and God is understanding it a different way. See, Jonah, on the one hand, understood it rightly as referring to the destruction of a city. It's a very rare usage of that word, but it can be used that way. And in Genesis chapter 19, it's used of the destruction of Sodom and of Gomorrah. And chapter 4, I think, makes it clear that this is the meaning that Jonah understood, that he wanted even. He's upset that, Jonah, that Nineveh doesn't get destroyed. So really, when he's preaching, he's going to the city, and I think we're meant to understand, he does say what God tells him to say. But he understands it, yet 40 days, and, go, and God's going to destroy all of you. And he's like, I can get behind that message, God. Thank you. But there's another way of understanding this word. It's a word for overthrown can also mean changed. It can also mean radically turned over. It can mean a 180 degree difference of direction. It can mean changed as in, I think, what happens in this irony in the chapter and the miracle of the radical repentance that God brought about through Jonah, his prophet. I think it's this meaning that God had intended for Nineveh. And we can see that when we look at our second point, Nineveh's repentance in verses 4 to 5. Because here is Jonah. He's obeying, thinking one thing, God's doing another thing. And he goes into the city. It says, he began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They trusted in God. They believed in God. They trusted these words and they put their hope in him. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I think what you have in these verses is the greatest result from the worst sermon in the whole Bible. And this guy is preaching a couple of words and he wants you to die. And then God uses it to bring repentance to a whole city. It's just this radical work that God's doing. I think we're meant to understand it's a miracle that Nineveh is changed by a mighty act of God. And what's interesting about this is that it's a miracle that has very little to do with Jonah. See, Jonah, he goes a third of the way into a three-day journey city. You know, that's kind of a funny way of measuring things. He goes a third of the way in, and I think what we're meant to see is not that, not that he's like, fine, I'll go one day, and stops, and then he says something, but that He's preaching as he goes, that he's saying these words so we can understand what's happening here again. And, and he's saying, you know, yet 40 days and it will be overthrown. And he's saying that as he's walking in. And all he has to do is go a third of the way in before the word spreads like wildfire and accomplishes all that God desired that word to accomplish. It's an incredible picture of the power of God's word. It's an incredible picture. The people of Nineveh, what do they do? They quit work. They sit in ashes. They clothe themselves in these coarse mourning clothes from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the descriptions here are the descriptions that scripture uses whenever someone is in deep, genuine repentance. These are deep, genuine pictures of real churning away from sin. They communicate a genuine conviction of our sin, a admission of our sin before a righteous God that I have done wrong. Woe is me. A repentance and a prayerfulness and a posture of humility before God. Please forgive me. 
pour out your mercy upon me. Save me. It's interesting. The whole city repents. How could that possibly have happened? It's not because Jonah told everyone in the city his message. What happened was that God's words on Jonah's mouth were the spark that God used to light a wildfire. And as God's word went from mouth to mouth to mouth, the fire spread. It spread, and as you see in the story, it outpaced Jonah. He'd not got very far, and the word just went forward, even to the point of touching or reaching the king of Nineveh. Listen to verses 6 to 9. And the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and he published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone churn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? God may churn and relent and churn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Isn't that interesting? Jonah's preaching expecting the worst for Nineveh and they're repenting and the king's expecting the very best. It's a hopeful posture in turning to God. But the, the text here says the word reached the king of Nineveh. And again, this is an interesting word. It, it can be translated touched. I like, I like the literalness, the concreteness of that. The, the, the word just comes into the throne room of the king. And all it needs to do, all the word of God needs to do is touch this king. And he's changed. See, God saves through his words on the mouths of his people. That's how he works. We saw this with the sailors in chapter 1, but now we see it again in a far greater way, the power of the word of God. It's not Jonah who saves the king or the sailors or anyone in Nineveh. It's God's word spoken in obedience, accomplishing all that God desires them to And that's, I think, encouraging and instructive for you and me. It's encouraging in another way, too, because the Bible often talks about God's word as seed. As seed is an illustration or an analogy that the Bible often uses about God's word. And why does the Bible talk about God's word as seed? Because a farmer in sowing seed doesn't create the seeds. The farmer just plants them. We don't create the seed that brings about the repentance and salvation of others. We just sow it. In this case, and much to Jonah's surprise, God had been at work far before Jonah got there, preparing Nineveh to be incredibly rich soil, ready to receive the word of God when it came. Actually, commentators and scholars, when they look at Nineveh at this period in time, they start talking about all these circumstantial reasons that that might have been the case. Why were they such fertile soil? There's actually a lot that was going on politically at the time, a lot of chaos and things that were going on. And whatever those circumstances might be, I think we're meant to understand, even as we look at the history, that God is a God who's sovereign in preparing soil as well as in sending the sower. It's the kind of God that he is. He's been hard at work preparing Nineveh. Jonah doesn't know that. So that when Jonah comes and he actually just speaks the word of God in obedience, something radical happens. 
He's the God who both prepares the soil and sends the sower. Praise him. We know that Jonah certainly struggled with the whole forgiveness of his enemies thing regarding Nineveh, but I think there's something else here. I think more fundamentally, we can see that Jonah had just written them off. He'd written them off. They're far too wicked and evil to ever turn to God. But notice Jonah's pride and arrogance in believing that. He's not just written off Nineveh. He's written off the mighty God who saves. He's written off the way that God was working to prepare the soil in advance. And in the same way, I think this is something we need to reckon with. Because we don't know what God has been doing in the lives of those around us. We don't. We don't know what God's been doing. There are people, I know, because you're just like me, who decide I won't share the gospel with them because they visibly appear to me as someone that's too far for God to reach. I was uh, with some friends uh, on Friday and there is someone who's wearing a, a jacket. On the back of the jacket, the, the words were, um, not today, Jesus. And on the one hand, you can look at that and like, well, I'm not going to try and share the gospel there. On the other hand, it's like, what, what brokenness and suffering and sorrow have led this person to this place where that's the posture they want to take towards Jesus? What's God been doing to prepare this soil? So don't write your neighbors off. Please, don't write your friends off. Don't write off the person you think is just too far away because you don't know what God is doing. I want to encourage you to be prayerful. Pray for boldness and courage to speak the word of God and trust the Holy Spirit as he leads and guides you. Don't ignore that still small voice that says, go and talk to this person, speak to this person, but follow the direction of the Lord. So Jonah we see, I think, here that he's obedient to plant, but that he hates the results of his obedience. He didn't want the results that came. He didn't think that Nineveh was going to repent, and he didn't really think they deserved to receive God's salvation if they did. So look at our last point, God's forgiveness in verse 10. There we read this. When God saw what they did, how they churned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. God is a God who loves to relent of the justice that our sin deserves. See, Jonah, he deeply struggled with God's forgiveness of these wicked people. And there's actually a lot of good reasons that Jonah struggled with them. After all, this is a city full of people who were representative of Israel's arch enemy. An enemy, by the way, who would get the upper hand and who would come to annihilate the northern kingdom of Israel. That's Jonah's people and only a couple of generations. They would come and they would destroy his family. This is what was going to happen. So Jonah preaching through the streets of Nineveh, it has a lot of parallels to a Jewish prophet preaching on the streets of Berlin in 1941. I'm just saying this because I, th- I think that if we think, you know, Jonah just should have or could have, we're missing, we're missing the pain here. Imagine if your enemies killed your loved ones and your children, your mom, your dad, your siblings. Would it be good news that God is willing to forgive them if they repent? Would it be good news 
for you to be commissioned to go and preach to them. See, for those under oppression, hearing that God is a God of mercy who forgives sinners, even your enemies, that might sound like bad news and not good news. So which is better? A God who forgives sinners or a God of justice who condemns them? Which is better, a a God who forgives sinners or a God of justice who lets the wicked get what they deserve, including your enemies? It's quite the dilemma, I think. It's the dilemma if we, we think about the Bible a bit more. It's a dilemma because if God is merely a God of justice who condemns sinners, I mean, yeah, our enemies will be destroyed. But so will we, right? Because the thing that we forget when we want God to be the God of justice is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none who is righteous, no, not one, Paul quotes from the Psalms in Romans chapter 3, that the just punishment of our sin, the wages of sin, Paul says in Romans 3, 23, is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we want God to just be just, we got to be fair with what that means. We point the finger outward, but there's uh, how many of the three, three, six? What's the, what's the line? That all the fingers are pointing back at me. You know, this is not going to go well for me. And on the other hand, if we only have a God of mercy, well then give up any hope that there will be anything in this world that's truly wicked that will ever be made right. Right? One or the other is bad news. And what you need to know, Christ City, what you need to take hope in is that the God of the Bible never for one second abandons justice. But neither does he even for one second abandon his mercy and his grace. He's both. He's both. He's the God we serve who never abandons his mercy in order to be just and never turns his back on his justice in order to show mercy. And we see that first and foremost in the person of Jesus Christ. Because 2,000 years ago, something so significant happened when we see the fullness of who God is as a God of justice and of mercy. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born as a human being. I mean, God Most High became human in the person of Jesus. And he was perfect and righteous. He was loving and just. He was full of courage and virtue. He treated everybody with kindness and spoke the truth to them and was full of love towards them. And yet what happened? This Jesus, this Son of God, He was betrayed by his closest friends. He was mocked and spat on by Roman soldiers. Falsely convicted of crimes that he did not commit. He was stripped naked. He was beaten till his flesh was torn off. He stumbled up the hill to Golgotha where he was crucified, nailed to a cross. Hung out for all to see in his blood and his filth till he died. Crucifixion was an art form meant to utterly dehumanize and destroy you. So the one who created humanity, 
was stripped of his humanity as he hung on the cross. Why? And why did Jesus do this? Why did God do this? Because the only way to show mercy to sinners like you and me, the only way to show mercy to Jonah and to Nineveh was for a substitute to stand in place of the justice that we deserve from God. It's the only way. See, the wages of sin is death, not just for Nineveh, but for Jonah. Not just for you, but for me and for our enemies. So what's God to do? If he pours out his justice, every human being on earth will die and be eternally separated from him. He's just wiping the board clean and starting over. But that's not who God is. Because though our God is just, he's a God who is full of mercy. Mercy to the point of bearing the weight of his own justice upon his own shoulders in our place. Because he became human for a reason. To bear the penalty that every one of us deserves in our place. So that absolutely anybody here in this room or anyone in the world who turns to Jesus and just says, I trust and I believe that you took my place. That we can be forgiven. That we can be sheltered in the mercy of God, shown on the cross of God, under the justice of God that was poured out on the shoulders of Jesus. So the Bible teaches about Jesus in Isaiah 53, 4-6. This, about him, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions, for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of us, every single person, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. See, nothing and no one could pay the penalty for sin except the priceless blood of Jesus. Imagine the scales, all the sins of humanity on one side, weighing them down and leading us to to justice. What could right that scale? Either the death of every human or something so immeasurably valuable, substituted in our place. It took the Son of God becoming human and dying to right that scale. On the cross, we see the mercy of God because through God's mercy, he pours his justice out on Jesus so we can be saved. 1 Peter 3.18 talks about this and it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the one righteous person for the unrighteous, so he might bring us to God, all of us to God. See, what God has done on the cross is provide sinners a way to be saved by his mercy, while still being perfectly just about our sin. Mercy and justice meet on the cross. The penalty's been paid. But that doesn't mean that God has then abandoned his justice in this world. It's not what it means. And as you can tell, when you look around in this world, there's many places where we see justice still to be done. You need to know something. God is a God of justice. And what he's done in his mercy, he's put two places in human history where justice will be done. One of those is on the cross of Jesus. 
So his offer of mercy can go out for all who will come to him and receive it. But there's another time of justice when all will be made right. Time when Jesus comes and he judges the living and the dead. When all wrongs will be righted. When everyone who has stood opposed in their wickedness and their rebellion against God, sowing destruction in this world, when they will stand before him and they will give an answer. And Christ said, that's not my opinion versus your opinion. That's the reality in which you live. Doesn't matter how big you think you are, you will stand before God in that place. Paul talks about this. That's actually one of the ways that he preaches the gospel. In Acts 17, 30 to 31, he said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands repentance because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see the, the logic Paul uses? He says, the historic reality that you can investigate, by the way, of Jesus' resurrection is the assurance that God has given that a judgment is coming. And there is a man who is returning who will judge the living and the dead. So the cry for all of us now is to come to that man in repentance. Come to this God to receive his mercy through his cross so we can be sheltered from his judgment when he returns. So which is better? Mercy or justice? On different days, I think we want different things. Right on the day that I feel my sin and you feel your sin and you're, you're full of guilt and shame, you want the mercy. On the day when you look out into the world and you see all the wrongs that are still to be righted, you want justice. But God, in his goodness, never abandons either. And the only reason Jonah, I think, struggled so much with God's grace to Nineveh was because he had set his hope so profoundly on God's justice for Nineveh. But in doing so, he forgot chapter 2, right? He forgot his own need for the mercy of God towards him. He forgot the bigger picture and that it's only good news if God is both just and merciful, not just towards him, but towards all. And we need to learn from this today. And the question for us then is, will we demand justice for others without taking refuge in Jesus? Or will we be humbled to our knees, remembering the price of our sin? And then in our place of humility, will we allow God to use us and sending us out as his instruments of salvation, even to our enemies? Because that's the appropriate response. That we'd be so full of humility and awe at his mercy towards us, we'd share it with others. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is a God who desires to save even our enemies. And the only way we'll rejoice in that truth other than resent it is if we begin to see that we require God's mercy and forgiveness just the same as them. But if we view ourselves as fundamentally better or more deserving of God's grace than others, we will always be reluctant to share the gospel with others. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that in your kindness and in your mercy, you would work through your word and that you would astound us that you are the God of salvation. That you would humble us to our knees. That you would bring us to the point of reckoning with our sin for what it is. Not the small thing we make of it, but the thing that actually is worthy of death, 
before a holy God. And Lord, would that drive us to this place then of finding refuge in Jesus? Lord, and as we rejoice in him and just give thanks in our awe that you, God, would come to earth to die for me. Lord, that we would be so amazed by your love for us that we would have all of that self-righteousness and that, that way that we think of ourselves as more deserving of your grace than the people around us, that, that would melt away. And that we would go out joyfully and willingly and trustingly in faith that you can use us even to save them. Lord, would you send us out now in the name of Jesus to be your agents of redemption. In his name we pray. Amen.